Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. 16 years ago, Amazon decided to sell excess storage capacity on its servers to companies that wanted to park their data somewhere. Today, the cloud computing business is booming as big firms offer an expanding range of software and services. And 50 years ago, in the wake of the sexual revolution, Alex Comfort, a British scientist, published The Joy of Sex to demystify sex and encourage readers to enjoy themselves. It proved wildly successful. We look back on its legacy. First up, though. Former President Donald Trump has had a tough couple of months There's breaking news out of Palm Beach, Florida. Former President Trump says his Mar-a-Lago home there is being raided by the FBI right now. In August, the FBI executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, his Palm Beach resort. The January 6th committee have been investigating his role in his supporters' attack on the U.S. Capitol. We have confirmed in numerous interviews with senior law enforcement and military leaders Vice President Pence's staff and D.C. government officials. None of them, not one, heard from President Trump that day. He's the subject of ongoing investigations into election interference in Georgia. We've had in excess of 50 people who have declined to talk to us voluntarily. And so what we plan to do is to start serving them with subpoenas. And now he's facing a new lawsuit in the state of New York. I am announcing that today... We are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. It's an unprecedented situation for an ex-president. Donald Trump has not had a good few weeks, legally speaking. Idris Kaloon is The Economist's Washington bureau chief. On Wednesday, the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, filed a behemoth lawsuit which alleged that the Trump organization, which was his real estate company that made him famous, had displayed over the last decade a staggering level of fraud. What does the new lawsuit allege? So the new lawsuit is a civil case against Donald Trump. It's not a criminal case, although uh, the attorney general did say that she was making a referral to federal prosecutors. But the lawsuit is against Donald Trump. It's against three of his children who participate in his business, as well as other people who were involved at senior levels of the Trump organization. And it alleges that the company had a persistent habit of grossly inflating the value of its assets in order to receive more preferential financing 
All in all, Ms. James estimates that the Trump Organization profited by an amount of $250 million because of these schemes. She is seeking to permanently bar members of the Trump family, including the former president, from operating a business in New York. And this is the culmination of an investigation which has been going on for three years, all of which is detailed in a, in a very lengthy and comprehensive 214-page complaint. And so how does the suit claim that Mr. Trump, his children and businesses, did what they're accused of doing? What kind of details are in the suit? It basically documents a lot of creative accounting that was used. So in the 11 annual statements put out by Donald Trump's company between 2011 and 2021, the government lawyers investigating this case compiled what they say are 200 specific instances in which those assets were presented with fraudulently high values. And in some of those cases, you know, the the tactics that they say were used don't appear to be particularly subtle. So, for example, in 2015, Donald Trump's personal apartment in Trump Tower was assessed as though it were 30,000 square feet in size when it was actually uh, closer to 11,000 square feet. And, you know, the value that uh, Donald Trump claimed his personal residence uh, was worth was at that point more expensive than the most expensive apartment ever sold in New York City. And other things as well, you know, Mar-a-Lago was valued in some Trump company documents as worth $740 million, basically assuming that all of the land could be sold and developed into houses, when in fact Donald Trump, in acquiring the property, had signed away those rights. He had said that he would preserve the property. He'd even sought an income tax deduction for doing so, according to the prosecutors. So he knew, they argue, that what he was claiming was incorrect. And they assess that Mar-a-Lago itself was worth only a tenth of the amount that was claimed on some of these documents. So this is not the first time that Donald Trump has faced serious legal threats What do you think the outcome of this case is going to be? Well, it's really hard to guess outcomes of cases in the best of times, even harder when prosecutors are attempting to indict a former president. This case was not criminal, but there was a referral made to prosecutors who, you know, may also look into possible tax crimes. It's a daunting amount, which an ordinary human being would, I think, have collapsed under the weight of. But of course, Donald Trump isn't an ordinary human being. And, you know, for him, there's been no sign that he's worried, at least outwardly. It's the classic Trump playbook saying that all of this is is just part of a great Democratic witch hunt against him. So that's New York. Let's move on to Georgia. Can you just remind our listeners what that case is about That is a criminal inquiry being pursued by Fannie Willis, who is the district attorney for Fulton County in Georgia that is examining whether the president and some of his closest allies engaged in a conspiracy to try to undermine the election results in that state in 2020. We know that she's called already some very high profile supporters of the president to give their testimony. That includes people like Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, and Rudy Giuliani, who was the president's counselor and who led the legal efforts to overturn the election results. She has not said yet whether or not the president will be charged. She's declined to answer that question when asked by reporters. But she has said that she expects that there will be news on possible indictments coming later this fall. Okay, so that's Georgia. Let's move on to Florida. This is the case that most people are probably familiar with. This is the one that involved the FBI serving a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago. Where does that case stand now? 
So that case has gone through a few legal loops. But essentially, the president's legal team sued to prevent the Department of Justice from examining some of the materials that were acquired from their search warrant executed on the president's residence. And that was initially delayed. They sought the appointment of a special master, former senior judge, who would oversee the handling of those sensitive documents. And after that delay, now we know the Department of Justice is, again, examining what was taken. But it looks like it's going to be an incredibly complicated case. We've already seen the suggestion of new legal theories. Donald Trump gave an interview to Sean Hannity on Fox News about the raid at Mar-a-Lago. You know, he suggested that he had the power to declassify documents with his thoughts, which has not been tested yet in American jurisprudence. So, you know, it'll be it'll be a long and winding case, I think. And it's pretty clear that the president's legal strategy, not only in the Mar-a-Lago case, but in all the others, is to try to delay the inquiries until at least the election year of 2024, where it's expected that Donald Trump will be running again to be president, at which point just, you know, the, the obstacles to indictment and conviction get even larger for prosecutors. So that implies to me that you think he's going to run and that, in fact, the chances of his running may have increased paradoxically as a result of these legal troubles. Do you think that's true? I think that's true. Definitely. I think that he was already at a very high probability of running. I think it's hard to imagine that anything that comes out of these cases would weaken Donald Trump's standing among Republicans. You know, there was a credible theory when the Mar-a-Lago raid happened that divisions within the party would finally crack. And I think the opposite happened. We saw many Republicans circle the wagons around Trump, including Ron DeSantis, who everyone thinks is the likely successor to Trump if Trump doesn't actually win the next nomination. Every sign suggests that the legal inquiries into Trump have had the effect of binding the party closer to him rather than breaking the two apart. All right. Idris, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. What an exciting day today. We announced we're moving our U.S. markets to AWS. Earlier this year, the NASDAQ exchange completed a move of its stock markets to a cloud computing platform from Amazon Web Services, or AWS. NASDAQ for the past 50 years has been an innovative market. We've started electronic trading. Now we actually see the opportunity to create a better, more secure, more resilient capital markets infrastructure of the future. When the collaboration was first announced in November, It was just the latest in a series of deals between cloud providers and financial institutions. And as the cloud's capabilities grow, the competition to be top provider is intensifying. 
Cloud computing is a huge array of very powerful computers that people and companies all around the world can use and access. Guy Scriven is our U.S. technology correspondent. In the kind of initial stages of the cloud computing industry, people mostly used this for storing files, big chunks of data. It was pioneered by Amazon and AWS, which stands for Amazon Web Services, is their cloud computing arm. And that was created by Amazon basically selling excess storage space they had on their own servers to other companies. That's now become a huge and kind of vital part of Amazon's overall business and is becoming kind of increasingly important to other tech giants as well, in particular Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, and Microsoft. And what you can do now with cloud computing has changed too. So it's not just about storage anymore. It's becoming increasingly about companies using things like artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies, which they wouldn't be able to access otherwise. So early in the segment, we mentioned that stock exchanges were migrating over to the cloud. What do these financial firms gain? How do they benefit by switching to cloud computing? Well, they benefit in all sorts of ways. So, for instance, the NASDAQ deal with Amazon Web Services, it includes very fast data transfer that pleases kind of high-frequency traders. And NASDAQ's customers are able to use some of AWS's advanced analytics tools, and they can do that through the stock exchange's own platform. But it's by no means just kind of AWS and and NASDAQ that are doing this. The deal between AWS and NASDAQ came at the end of last year, and that was just a few weeks after Google uh, said that its cloud computing arm, GCP, had come up with a similar deal for CME, which is one of the world's biggest derivative exchanges. And actually, a day before the Google CME deal, Microsoft's uh, Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud offering, announced the rollout of its own financial services cloud. And its clients include really big banks like Morgan Stanley and HSBC. On top of all of that, IBM and Oracle also have their own financial cloud offerings. So there's plenty of competition billowing over the cloud, if you like. What sort of money are these firms putting into their cloud operations? We don't have exact figures, but we know that Alphabet, Amazon and Microsoft over the past 12 months, have a kind of combined capital investment of about $120 billion. If you look at this as a kind of share of revenue, it's still kind of a large, and for Amazon and Microsoft, increasing amount. So Amazon and Microsoft have seen their capital expenditure as a share of revenue rise by five percentage points in the last five years. And both of those figures are now about 13%. Even though there's kind of loads of money being poured into this, there's still plenty of opportunity. A business or an enterprise might run an application or a piece of software on its local server. That would be considered kind of one workload. Figures vary for this because there are different ways to measure it. But people think about 30% of enterprise workloads have so far shifted to the cloud. So there's maybe, you know, 70% of the world's kind of workloads to be shifted in the future. So these firms are pouring a lot of money into this business. Are they making money from it yet? Yes, to an extent. If you look at the entire cloud industry, it's forecast to reach about $500 billion in revenue this year. But if you go back to the three really big tech giants, their revenues are growing really, really quickly. So AWS's sales grew 33% year on year uh, in the last quarter. 
Microsoft and, and Google's cloud offerings grew kind of 40 and 36% respectively. For Amazon and uh, we think for Microsoft, the businesses themselves are really quite kind of profitable. So about three quarters of Amazon's operating income is generated by AWS. It generates much more than Amazon's retail business in, in terms of profit. Microsoft don't publish data on profitability, but the analysts I speak to basically think it's roughly as profitable as AWS. The kind of outlier here is Google's cloud business. Google's basically kind of spending a lot of money building its data centers, trying to gain market share by offering lower prices to some customers. So it racked up about $3 billion worth of losses in the past 12 months, which is kind of small compared to its overall revenue, about 1% of Alphabet's overall revenue. But it still stands in a striking contrast to Microsoft and Amazon's cloud businesses. And what are these firms doing to, to protect these profits, or in Google's case, to reduce their losses? All three firms have cut hardware costs by making kind of better use of old servers and old machines. Another way they're improving their hardware is by basically taking chip design in-house. And the other thing the tech giants are doing is introducing and offering kind of additional cloud services for, for customers to take advantage of. One good example of this is the kind of AWS NASDAQ tie-up. But all the cloud firms offer industry-specific solutions. And that's from all kinds of industry, from kind of gaming to government, robotics. They've been hiring in executives from certain industries. So what's next? Where does the tech industry go next with the cloud computing? Well, the next really big step that everyone's excited about is advanced analytics that sit on top of the cloud. So a really good example of this is grocery stores some of which are using a combination of video cameras and AI so that they know when it's time to restock their shelves and they know what kind of products are selling well and which aren't. Another kind of fun example I found about this is Cirque du Soleil, the famous traveling circus. And they use cloud-based AI technology with video cameras to analyze the reactions of their audience when their performers do death-defying stunts in order to try to work out what audiences like most and, and what kind of stunts are most thrilling for their viewers. This whole set of new capabilities enormously expand the, the, the potential market for cloud computing. When Satya Nadella, who's the boss of Microsoft, talks about IT as a share of GDP doubling in the next decade, what basically analysts think he is referring to is this enormous expansion of cloud computing where all IT provision comes through the cloud. And that is where kind of the optimists think cloud computing is going in the next few years. And that's why everyone's excited about it and pouring money in. All right, Guy, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, John. If you like The Intelligence, please rate us on your podcast app. And if you like The Economist, sign up for Economist Education's six-week online course on business writing and storytelling. Learn to write with clarity, punch, and pith, and gain the tools to become a more effective business communicator. The course is designed by many of the journalists you hear on the show. Register now and enjoy a 15% discount as a listener to The Intelligence. 
Go to economist.com slash writing course and use the discount code intelligence at checkout. The year was 1972 and liberation was in the air. Charlotte McCann writes for The Economist and is also the author of a short book about the history of sexuality. Jane Fonda had gone to Hanoi to ask American soldiers to stop bombing Vietnam. At the same time, college students back home in the U.S. were taking to the streets, protesting, rallying around the slogan of make love, not war. The country was in tumult. There was cultural chaos at this time. And throughout all of that, a man named Alex Comfort imposed a little bit of order. He was the author of The Joy of Sex, which was published 50 years ago. He hoped that his manual would do for sex what The Joy of Cooking had done for food. Conservative views about sex were still really dominant. For the baby boomers' parents, there was a view that sex was really about procreation. If it brought husband and wife closer together, that was a great thing. That was an added bonus. But really, it was about begetting children. And yet there was a kind of cultural reckoning which had begun in the 1960s. And that was really upending this consensus about what sex was for. Wives were absorbing the ideas of feminists like Betty Friedan. They were buying the contraceptive pill. The International Planned Parenthood Federation believes that it is one of the fundamental rights of couples to be able to choose when their children are to be born and the size their family should be. At the same time, you had group sex enthusiasts at utopian communes who were arguing, hey, sex doesn't need to be confined by marriage. And then, of course, you had gay men and women who were defying heterosexual norms by coming out. The cultural event that really kind of captured how permissive society had become was the release of the pornographic film, Deep Throat. I want to hear bells, bombs, and dams bursting. One of the most profitable films ever made. Comfort, who was a British biologist, picked up on this cultural moment He observed in his book that people today are less bothered about sin, they're more interested in sexual satisfaction. It's worth underscoring what a radical point that was to make. The culture was just emerging from centuries of rather po-faced Puritanism. A lot of people kind of worried that their desires were somehow wrong or abnormal. And Comfort wrote, as long as both participants enjoy what they're doing, weren't hurting anyone, they didn't have anything to worry about. And one rather outlandish example, he said, citing a very specific case, the man who could orgasm only in a bath of cooked spaghetti was definitely kind of weird, but if it worked for him, why not? He had originally envisioned the book actually as a textbook for his medical students. He was just appalled by their ignorance when it came to sexual matters. By contrast, Dr. Comfort was kind of an expert. He had a lot of sex. He watched a lot of people having sex. He was a habitué of a place called Sandstone, which was a swingers resort in California that he went to frequently with his wife. 
Dr. Comfort had relatively advanced ideas about gender and sexual orientation for the time. He wrote that women do not automatically want to be the passive partner in sex. And he even made the claim, which was incredibly daring for the time, that everyone, as he put it, was bisexual, that everyone has urges for members of the same sex. By the same token, his views were not so radical as to be off-putting to the mainstream of 70s America. Love was very important, he argued. Good sex wasn't possible without it. And as much as he loathed Victorian prudery, he also said that people shouldn't actually be bisexual, that they should be confining those urges, those same-sex urges, within heterosexual partnerships. And then, of course, there are his views about women. He was a real champion of female sexual pleasure. But at the same time, he said, if men couldn't always control themselves around women, that wasn't necessarily men's fault. He told women, don't get yourself raped. The Joy of Sex was a phenomenal success. It inspired five sequels, a bunch of spin-offs. A few years later, The Joy of Gay Sex, written by a different author, was published. There was a film of the same name. Your father said that he would castrate anybody that laid a hand on you. Oh, you know he didn't mean it. Oh. There was even a video game that was released on a now long-forgotten console, Philips CDI. First, rate scenarios to find out where you fall, then select from personalized topics. There's even a fun game which both you and your partner can play. The book is very much a product of its time. Comfort had his biases. So much of his advice is just so deeply 70s. You know, he tells readers to experiment with a waterbed. Deodorant must be banned. Absolutely, he says. Despite that, you know, I think some of his advice is actually really useful. One of his key messages is, you know, the importance of communication. Couples must communicate their desires to each other without judgment. That's the only way you're going to dispense with feelings of shame and learn how to have fun. And because good sex thrives on empathy and trust, he argues it teaches us to treat each other not as objects, but as people. I think that's a recipe that is still worth learning today. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent. And our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alice Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners, with extra production help this week from Elna Schultz. We'll all see you back here on Monday. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, 
and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.